0: Episode 81, Tim Tingle. The Historical Perspective of Native American Storytelling.
1: Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing.
2: That's a great question.
1: Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself.
0: Follow your passion. And
1: live with grace.
0: Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling with Children. I am so thrilled you've made it here, because this is Brother Wolf, and you have come to the right place. You have come to the place where we shine a light, a bright light into the world, the love, the care of storytelling. And I have found a treat for you tonight. I have found Tim Tingle. Tim has made a reputation for himself as one of, one of the growing lights, one of the, of the growing stars of the storytelling movement. Tim Tingle is an enrolled member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma and a frequent speaker at tribal events. Author of six books, including the award-winning Crossing Chicto. How do I pronounce that?
3: Crossing Bochito? Crossing Bo- uh, right. Bochito, but there's there's no wrong way to pronounce it. Depending on what part of Mississippi or Oklahoma you are,
0: it <laughs> doesn't matter.
3: <laughs> Single performed Choctaw traditional stories at the
0: Native American wing of the Smithsonian Institute in 2006 and 2007, and at the 2008 American Library Association Conference in California. He spoke at the multi-ethnic event, Many Voices, One Nation, and in 2007 served as the American Library Association panel of ethnic folklorists and writers, Voices from the Inside. Thank you so much,
3: Tim, for coming on the show today. It's an honor. Thank you for inviting me, Eric. Tim, do you have a story you could share with us tonight? just a uh just a brief story this was this story was told to me by uh, a Choctaw woman who lives near Hugo uh i was visiting her in her home it was uh it was december it was chilly outside and the room was lit only by the by the logs from the fireplace and as we looked outside her we were facing uh, a heavy woods and she started talking about how she was raised in that area. And she said that uh, the menfolk were gone hunting. And her mother piled her and her little brother on the back of a wagon with quilts. And they made their way to a friend's home and stayed for a couple of days and jarred up some uh, some squash, made some pickles, and slaughtered a hog. And a snowstorm was coming. And then her friend tried to talk her into staying for the night, and she said no. With the snow and the sleet, the men folk will be home, and they've been out deer hunting for several days, and I need to be there to help with the deer and to uh, to welcome the men and to cook. So, with her portion of the slaughtered hog on the back of the wagon, with Helen being a young girl and her little brother under a quilt, her mother began the the long ride home. It was about five miles through the woods and the sloshing, muddy road and the and the sleet. And soon it was pitch dark. And she said, uh, she, her mother got very nervous and she heard the horse kind of neighing and whinnying and making nervous noises. And then her mother asked her to, uh, hand up a piece of the meat, a small piece. And so she reached up under the quilt and handed her mother a piece of the meat and saw that her mother flung it out into the woods. And there was a scurrying and a shuffling of uh, rattling a leaf sound. And uh, by the time they reached home, little by little, she had handed up so much meat that there was barely any left. And as soon as they reached the front door, the mother uh, uh, dashed inside. But the little boy slipped from her grip. It was sleeting really hard now. And fell down next to the wagon. And the mother didn't realize it till they were inside. And she started out and the helen said that that she saw her mother pick the young boy up and then turn and dash inside the house and there was a look of real fear on her mother's face and her little brother was fine and then her mother dashed around and closed all the windows and and all of the all the curtains closed and she got the shotgun and loaded it and looked out the front window and helen said there was a a panther uh, a black panther and it had stepped out of the woods, and apparently that's what her mother had been flinging the meat to, so the panther would leave them alone and eat the meat instead. And the panther uh, just howled that cry of a panther and then began a, a walk around the house, and the mother would dash from one room to one window to the next. And, and she said the panther was large enough, it could have just leapt through the, through the glass and been inside the house. And finally, after a few hours, the men showed up and the panther made its way back into the woods. And then uh, Helen's mother told told her father about the panther and what had happened. And the father took the shotgun and and stepped out. And as soon as he stood on the porch, the panther came out and, and cried and threw her head back and then flicked her tail. And he picked his shotgun up and pointed it at the panther and then just held it there frozen without shooting while the panther made her way back into the woods and when he came into the house he uh he shut the door and the mother was upset and said why didn't you shoot the panther and he said the panther was there to protect you the panther was not trying to do you any harm and she said that evening she went upstairs to give her grandfather who had gone out on his first hunting trip since his wife had died uh, bring bring some chocolate up to her grandfather and he was in his room and she looked outside the the window and she saw by the light of the moon her grandfather was standing there and he was rubbing on the face of the panther just as she had seen him a few days before rubbing on the face of his wife's picture and he was rubbing tears from his cheeks and rubbing them on the face of the panther and she realized then that the panther was her grandmother and it had come back to protect them that something was after them in the woods that's a the end story now that's amazing yeah it was it was uh it was an astounding story to hear uh a woman tell it looking out in the woods where it where it took place and there's an old one of the ancient Mississippi-based uh, Choctaw traditions carried over in Oklahoma that uh that if you respect your ancestors and and give them uh give them honor and in memory that uh if your life is ever in danger that they'll show up to protect you and the most sacred form of an ancestor showing up is' in, in a black panther, so when a Choctaw sees a panther outside of the norm, you know, and these days to see a panther anywhere would be outside of the norm then it's then it's time to take a step back and and watch every step you take because your life is being threatened
0: now for the un uh, the uninitiated here by panther,
3: you mean American mountain lion, yeah, yeah, is that right yes, mountain lion, mountain lion, panther, cougar, yes.
0: No, no, it's fine to call a panther. I just want to be clear so that... No, it's the same.
3: You're exactly right. It's the same.
0: I'm really tempted to share my panther stories now, which is which is the best response to any really good storytelling is you want to share your own similar
3: stories. <laughs> I'd love but to hear it. But this
0: brings up a really important question for me, something I've asked before in other shows that I'm really fascinated with, which is this idea of stories having a place. You know, you heard that story in the place it happened. Yes you know and not only that but you were of the people who have a special relationship to that animal so not only yes. was there a place it happened but there was also sort of this this real distinct cultural relationship to to what it means
3: that's already market. there before the story is ever unfolded yeah
0: yeah so what happens when i take that story as you just did and and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with it but what sure. happens when i take that story and i expose it to an audience who don't have any of those assumptions
3: anymore you know, a couple of things that can be can be done. If I were telling, and I've noticed other Choctaw storytellers uh, do exactly what you're talking about. If they're telling to an all-Choctaw all audience, they recognize that the need to explain is minimal. So the narrative will hold forth. If I were telling that story to uh, an, a general adult audience, now I know that... Uh, Some of the listeners out there uh, are Southeastern Indians. So, if there are any Creek or Seminole listeners, which I think there might be, then they'll understand also about Panther. But if I'm telling it to a general audience, I would frame it in such a way I would, uh, I think I would, uh, I would explain what a Panther is to Choctaws, and then I would begin earlier than the beginning of that story. So the explanation would not seem as if it were part of the text of the story, which still allows for a bit of the surprise. So I would explain culturally what a, what a Panther mountain lion is, and then I would talk a little more about my meeting with Helen, about her sharing the story with me, about where we were. I think more detail is required, more cultural explanation is required as we move away from, from our own culture. And I think it's important that you bring up a fabulous point.
0: Well, it's really interesting to me because I'm thinking about you know, how much – you know, I love Bruce Schock's work. And, and yes. for many years, I basically only told his work um, in environmental camp settings
3: yeah.
0: you know, where I was getting paid to be an environmentalist, not a storyteller. And so I do only his work at campfire circles and stuff. And, and over time, I began to realize there was a whole subtext to the stories that I didn't have a clue existed. Just like what you're talking about here, you know, of what these things meant.
3: The mention of the word panther to Choctaws reverberates in, in such a way and to a lot of, of, uh, of Native people of Southeastern culture, just the saying of the word panther puts you in a certain mindset and you know that this is a sacred coming back story of an ancestor. You know that. The same way the mention of the word rabbit in uh, Choctaws will laugh you know, just to say rabbit, and they'll laugh because they know this is going to be one of those kind of stories. So is there a relationship between the Br'er Rabbit stories and the Choctaw? Uh, you know, a lot, there's been a lot of debate, and I'm sure there have been many dissertations and theses that deal with with uh, the origin of Br'er Rabbit, uh, whether Br'er Rabbit comes from African folktales uh, or whether it's Cherokee, it's it's Choctaw, it's uh, it's Creek. But yeah, I think there's a definite there's a definite relationship and you can trace some of the uh Cherokee rabbit tales, trickster tales and they have their uh counterparts in uh Uncle Remus stories. So yeah, I, I think there's a definite definite relationship. In the same way that there is a distinct relationship much more than most Americans ever imagined between African Americans, former slaves and Indian people in the South. And I think that's a major way how stories get spread.
0: Yeah, there's something about the, the interchange of cultures that is amazing in storytelling. While we're on this, and I, I need to go on the other subject, but I'm just really curious about this stuff. Are there nations that were, con- that were, oh, I should say tribes for people who aren't used to talking that way. Are there other tribal groups that were traditional enemies of the Choctaws who developed a set of stories of Black Panthers being the negative?
3: Not that I'm aware of. I, I think the traditional enemies of the of the Choctaws at, at one time uh Chickasaws, although one of the origin tales is that at one time we were the same, but there were some pretty violent wars in Mississippi between Choctaws and Chickasaws. But uh the Creeks have been enemies, uh, famous enemies since the the War of eighteen twelve. The Creeks sided with the British, you know, and then, there have been territorial battles, but I'm I'm not aware of of Panthers being being dark evil figures in, in any native lore, and that's certainly not say that it doesn't exist, but I'm I'm just not aware of it.
1: This is Ethnotech. I am Nancy Wong and I am
2: Robert Kikuchi Ingo.
1: And you are listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children. Children. Woohoo
0: Getting back to our promised topic. Oh, yeah, that. What what should storytellers who are not Native know about the historical perspective and the modern historical perspective of Native American storytelling?
3: May I start with just a simple little uh, story, which I think it it certainly relates. Go ahead. It certainly relates. One of the things, and I I just uh, came back from the Patchwork Storytelling Festival in South Carolina, but... I've done this at lots of places, and, and at schools, at public performances, and I love doing this. I'll ask, uh, first, I'm always introduced as a Native American storyteller, member of the Choctaw tribe. So I come out and I'll usually open, if it's early in the morning or first set of the day for me, I'll sing Amazing Grace in Choctaw and use a whale-skinned drum that's not Choctaw. But I talk a little bit about the drum sometimes. And then I'll ask if, if there are uh, Native American people in the audience. And if it's a school audience, I ask that, will the Native people please stand? And then I'll ask them to have a seat. And then I offer a door prize. I'll say, uh, I'm going to give away a free book, and you get to choose to the first person that can tell me what the Indians wear. And I get, uh, as you would imagine, I I get moccasins and bearskin and buffalo skin and feathers and all of these things. And usually one of the Indian students will say, Well, finally, you know, as I'm one by one shooting down these answers, one of the Indian students will wave their hand really rapidly and I know, well, they've got it. And they say, whatever is in the closet, clean. And it depends on where they're going and what their mom and dad are going to let them wear. You know, or sometimes a teacher. uh, This last week, uh, a teacher in the back of a huge auditorium, she said, red shirt and khaki pants. And I thought, what does she mean? And then I looked at myself, and I had on a red shirt and khaki pants. And so she won, the, she won the book. And the reason I think it's, the reason I wanted to tell that before we moved into the other issue is this is a nice little intro into it. That this is, whether you're Native or whether you're non-Native, certainly for non-Native tellers dealing with Native stories, but for Native people as well, I think it's very important that one of the first things you establish is Native people are modern people. We're modern people. We're still alive. Neither Custer nor John Wayne killed us all. We're doing fine. And, uh, and actually, John Wayne was a great friend of Indian people, so I shouldn't even make that joke. We're doing fine. And, and we're writers, and we're, we're lawyers, and we're school teachers. But somehow, when you just say the word Indian or say the word Native American, you're just filled with stereotypes, and I think part of the reason is it's our fault. Uh, I have a book coming out in, uh, should be out in about a year, and it's about my grandmother and how the trouble she had being accepted in the 1950s and earlier in the Houston area, being one of the first full-blood Indians to, be, to move back to that area after removal. So all the Indians are modern Indians. They're my folks. I'm in it. And we, kept, we had someone with uh, American Indian Library Association, uh, ALA, wing of ALA, go back through and we could find only a handful, really just a couple of illustrated children's books that ever showed Indians in anything other than traditional clothing. So if we're not showing and illustrating and sharing stories of modern Indians, then it's really as much our fault that all they're getting is stereotypes of Indian people. I think one of the first places, just a simple answer for the question you asked, one of the first places to go is, is Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by Dee Brown. And I think if everyone that wants to tell Native stories, even traditional stories that have nothing to do with with the conflict between cultures, they still owe the people that they're dealing with the reading of that book and the beginning of the understanding of what has happened, uh, to this land.
0: Cause that book is so, it can be so overwhelming and a little depressing sometimes. Um, what about like watch for me on the mountain books that are like
3: more honest, but also a little bit more upbeat. Well, with, with bury my heart at wounded knee, I recommend no more than a chapter a week. Yeah, I'm sure That's how I read it. A, a, a chapter a week. And I will, uh, I will be glad to send out a bibliography of, of, other, of other books that I could recommend. I think it's just a basic, you know, it can, it can be depressing, but on the other hand, we need to know. People just, the general public needs to know, I think. And if it's depressing for people who are not Indian reading it, then consider how it is for Indian people dealing with a whole America who doesn't know. And we were raised knowing. I was I was in late elementary school before I realized that not everybody in America knows about the Trail of Tears, that not everybody in America had a great great granddad walk on it and knew of these stories. So I, you know, I I, I stand by that book.
0: Thirty percent of the audience listening to this call
3: will not know. I mean, they're overseas; they have no way
0: of knowing the Trail of Tears. They could look it up in Wikipedia. Yeah. But let's give them give them a one minute roundup of the Trail of Tears.
3: Okay. The Trail of Tears was the removal of, uh, of most Indians from the South, in the South going all the way from the Carolinas, Tennessee, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, removal of Indians to Oklahoma. And there was a whole series of treaties. Uh, the first treaty, actually, it was instigated by President Andrew Jackson, who was a southern president, the first treaty was signed on my older brother's, actually two of my brother's birthdays, September 27th. It was signed in 1830, and the Choctaws were f- the first to be removed on the Trail of Tears. And one of the reasons uh, the Choctaws were chosen first is they uh, had a highly developed military. They had had generals that served in the U.S. Army to defend the city of New Orleans in the Battle the War of 1812. So Jackson knew that once the Choctaws were gone, that that the highly organized militia would be out of the way. Uh, next were the Cherokees. They moved in 1834. Creeks, Seminoles, Chickasaws, and other, other South, southeastern tribes. It's called the Trail of Tears because uh, there was so much, so much death on the particular uh, 1,000 people that began when my great-great-grandfather walked on the trail. Uh, 500 of the people died. And in many cases, rather than bury the ancestors out in the woods where they could never even honor their graves, they carried the bodies all the way to Oklahoma where they could be buried uh, close to family. So the Trail of Tears, the term I think came up, uh, I think it was an Arkansas journalist that saw Choctaws walking by and, and, and saw the tragedy. There was not enough food. It was Lots of people had no shoes. It was freezing cold it was it was a tragic time, and oftentimes when Choctaws and natives Seminoles, when natives of the South think of the Trail of Tears, we feel of it as an event of pride that if ever we needed proof that we were walking in in a divine light, that the fact that we could survive even this as a people is is validation so when Choctaws and when uh, Cherokees speak of the trail of tears they speak of a thing of pride that it was, uh, it was a hard time it was a, it was a tough time and there was uh, my son goes back and he says dad it was the invention of the cotton gin he thinks that uh, up until a, the invention of the cotton gin so many slaves could take care of so many acres of cotton but once the cotton gin was invented uh, a plantation owner could then with the same amount of slaves take care of ten times the acreage so the need was for more land, and who owned the best land, the river bottom land. It's important, too, to keep the
0: idea here in mind that there were civilized tribes, tribes that had sort of taken on the settlers' ways, and the Choctaws were among those. Yeah. So it wasn't just like when we think of the, you know, when I, when I was raised, to think of Native people as living in teepees and hunting buffalo. Right. <laughs> or living in, um, in lodges and hunting deer. These are people who were living in towns with houses
3: yeah and the by uh the Choctaws were primarily a Christian people by the time the Trail of Tears uh came about uh, missionaries from Presbyterian and Methodist church had had created a written language uh, had taught the Choctaw's Christian hymns and and learned the Choctaw language and, and even uh you know even when Columbus landed uh Choctaws and Cherokees had a sense a democratic sense of government already had townships Already had they would elect representatives to a national government, uh, constitutions, laws would be passed that would be good for the entire nation. And this was when Columbus landed. So we were very far from being nomadic people. There were there were homes and distinct uh, laws and city government and even national government. And this was several hundred years before the Trail of Tears.
0: Now some people may hear these stories, and I actually think these are very valid stories for any storyteller to cover in their show in terms of the history of a people, in terms of talking about history. But some people will hear these stories that we're talking about right now and they will say, well, that's in the past. That was a long time ago. And it may be a bitter time, but it was 150 years ago. You know, it was, uh, it was almost 200 years ago now. What is your reply to that?
3: Even if elements of, of uh, this kind of disregard of, of indigenous people, even if that stopped... A hundred years ago, it would still be very valid to know where we stand, where we live. Another question I enjoy asking, especially school audiences, is how many of you have ever been to a place where Indians used to live? And I live close to San Antonio, and so I especially enjoy asking that question there. And usually there'll be a few hands, and, and I'll ask for a description. And they'll say, Well, we went to. Canyon de Chey or we and they'll describe a place that isn't a federal or a, a state park where Indians used to live, and at the end of this, you know catching these audience responses, I'll point out if you live in a place where you can stand in your backyard and see a group of trees that grew there, grow there naturally, or if you live within a mile of body of water, you live where Indians used to live and especially in uh, San Antonio area, I like to pose the question, who do you think built the Alamo? Who do you think built all of the missions, the Spanish mission? Indian people built those missions. They were the first slaves of the New World, Indian people, long before African-American slaves were brought. So just being better informed about our history, I think is a is a very important thing. But the truth is, it hasn't stopped and uh and for some reason just in the last 3 years it seems like uh I'm going to some of the same places I went before but I've got a few books out now that are uh you know native american culture based and history based and because of those books I think people are opening up more to me uh I was in Mariposa at the festival in Mariposa and the native people who uh, occupied were at Yosemite. They talked to me about uh, about the taking of their homes just within the last, within this generation. Uh, and the same, I was at upstate New York at Seneca Nation uh, a few months ago. Heard the same stories about about the flooding and the people being given inadequate time to collect their belongings. Just buses coming by and and the floods that created a, a dam and a new lake that just destroyed their grandparents' homes that they had had because of treaties. And Laguna Pueblo, uh, which Joe, Joe Sanders uh, has been there several times, but Laguna Pueblo, which has had uh, uh, illegal uh, mining of uraniums, New Mexico. Laguna Pueblo is in uh, central New Mexico, and uh, we spoke with a the family there who was on on one of the mesas, and they talked of uh, of uranium mining that people were told nothing about, and they found they discovered uh, what amounted to Geiger counters to measure the radioactivity, and that people had died in their pueblo with cancer that was uh, related to it, and with just no government compensation or even recognition that these things were happening, because they're in Indian country, access to the media is limited. And i have even i've considered a book of collections of these stories of uh you know modern wounded knee modern wounded knee stories, not in a way not to politicize but just to let let people be aware that when children answer the question of moccasins and feathers and buffalo skin that those same children grow up to be adults, and when they think of Indians they don't think of Contemporary Indian people still trying to gain respectability in America. They think of fabled Indians of the past. So in many ways, I think that little game is one of the most important things I'm doing to try to break down the stereotypes and let people respect us, give us, give us the respect that we're 20th century modern Americans contributing.
0: So as storytellers, whatever our background if we are telling a story from a native tradition, we have a responsibility then to be informed, not completely, but in some way about
3: these issues. I, I think so. I think uh, that every storyteller has a responsibility to do the best they can with the resource capacity that they have to find out about the people they're telling about. Not just to do a quick little Google Search to find out where these people lived and what were a basic, you know, how did they make their means of livelihood. But to try to establish, I I really encourage people, and it's not that hard through Internet, just to try to establish some kind of relationship with someone from that tribal group so they can catch the story from that perspective. As far as permission to tell, I think there would be very few Native peoples who would deny permission to tell a piece of history, if it were an important part of American history that's simply not being told, and the whole issue of not telling native stories if you're not Indian, I think it really doesn't apply to historical stories and I think with traditional stories, just to anticipate that one that that it absolutely varies not only from tribe to tribe but from almost family to family and I try to uh i I try to absolutely respect that. When I went to Alaska a few years ago, and uh, everywhere I went with every tribal group, I I asked about uh, possible permission telling some of the stories. When I finally reached the most remote, the Yupiks, by the time I got back, they sent me four boxes of books of Yupik stories and said, please tell them. We want people to know about us. We want them to know our history, our our legends. We want people to know about the Yupiks. So... Uh, and other groups in Alaska had said, no, only certain members of certain clans can tell stories at certain times of the year. I think there's no real answer to who can tell Indian stories. I think it it varies on uh, which tribal group you're talking about and then who you are, where you're coming from.
0: We're going to open up the call in a moment um, if you want to join this conversation with a comment or a question. In your life, do you have some stories that you feel like are your family stories that you're not going to tell anybody?
3: Yes. Oh, that I'm not going to tell well, anybody. Only people
0: who are members of your family. Or only people who are close to your family.
3: You know there there's a there's a saying that if you if you have a writer in the family, it's a it's a blessing and a curse. <laughs> and the curse is that the writer is always looking for the things the family wants to hide because that's where The meat is. That's the curse. And as for the blessing, they're still looking for that. And I think as a storyteller, I think, uh, yeah, there are a lot of family things that I wouldn't tell. As a writer, I've written lots of short stories that (laughs) are already written, and I'm just wondering what publication, what anthology, what gathering of my stories, you know, should I change the names to protect the guilty and the innocent as well? So yeah, I think I think storytellers and writers, I think we all we all face that. I tell uh, I tell lots of family stories. Now I, I made an agreement. I don't even know where it came from, but it just seemed the right thing to do when I started. About it's been 20 years ago now. And it doesn't seem like nearly that long, but when I started interviewing older Choctaws and recording their conversations. I started out telling people that every character they told me about, whether I wrote, told the story as it was, whether I fictionalized it, whether I used pieces of it, put it in another story, composite story, every single character that they shared with me would have a moment of light. Even the characters that would be the bad guys, the evil character in the story, there would be some justification for their actions some little brief of an insight, moment of insight, which would give that character their sacred place and once I made that promise and kept that promise, then I think I think people were opening up more to me, and I also noticed a change in my own telling that i had to I had to look at the stories differently, and I had to sometimes seek out that little glimmer of light and even the what first might appear to be the darkest of characters.
0: So do you think we, as, as storytellers, do you think we have a responsibility to to leave room for the good? You know what I mean?
3: Yeah, not only to leave room for it, but, uh, you know, um, I, I see my writing and my storytelling, and I'm not saying this is how everyone should see it, but I see it as a way of finding the light. And that's why... With the trail of tear stories, with the bury my heart at wounded knee, with those kind of stories, there truly is a light at the end of that, because we have survived that. Every nation talked about in D Brown's book, some have overcome to more degree than than the others. Some are more successful now, but we're still we're still kicking. We're still alive. That is the overriding purpose. If there's any purpose to to the stories that I tell, and I look for stories that have a light at the end of them, that find a way. Even if it's just a small, just a small light. There's there's a story that I do, uh, Jimmy Ben and the Owl, and it's in, in my first book. And it ends with this owl character that's been after this little boy. And he's an, he's an old man just after a little boy because he's discovered that he's a shapeshifter. And the final scene of story, the story, the owl has been killed. He's changing back into the old man. And as the young boy and his father come in upon the clearing, just a little bit of sunlight is finally shining on this man just before he dies, as if he had his troubles too. He's an owl man. He was evil in our culture. But look, as he's dying, the sun is shining on him. There's a light there. So that's where, uh, that's where I want to leave the audience and I want to leave the reader with a sense, of, uh, a sense of hope. If you can do that at the end of the Trail of Tears, then I think as a storyteller, you've done your job.
0: Audience, if you have a comment or a question, if you want to join in the conversation, put your, add your two cents, go ahead.
1: Hi, Tim. This is Sarah in Meridian, Mississippi. Yes, I'm wondering if you're planning to come back over and uh collect more stories um in reference to the Choctaws living here now and 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 if, if that's if that's in your future plans.
3: Well, you know about ten seconds ago it wasn't. <laughs> but I think it just made it on the shelf. <laughs> I need I do need to make another uh another trip back. Uh the major Esseline Tubby, uh, Archie Mingo, all of the people that were the major interview subjects that uh ended up having important parts in walking the Choctaw Road in my first book, they're all gone now. So I I definitely need to get back to Philadelphia and and find some of those younger people <laughs> younger people they could be 60 by now they could be 70 but find some of these people that Archie Mingo had had given his story given his voice to so uh yeah I need to get back there you know I've got I've got I've given myself time this summer a lot of time for writing and I need to get back if you will uh If you'll email me so I would have your email.
1: Do that, Tim. I'll I'll tell you one quick thing. I met an 80-year-old man just recently. Actually, he's 84, and he's a walking archive in Meridian, and he told me he was part Choctaw and that during the Trail of Tears, there were many, many people who helped hide the Choctaws, and I'd never heard that before. I wasn't aware that any of the white folks had come forward as helpers uh, for the Choctaws. I thought they'd been pretty much on their own, um, or maybe getting help from some of the slaves. So that—that that was. I was just the first time I'd come across that. I didn't know if
3: you—you know—that's a story. That's a story that needs to be told. Yeah, absolutely. That story needs to be told. Let's stay in. Let's stay in touch for sure. Thank you. I,
1: I will. I promise.
3: Do you want to share your website, Sarah, or?
1: I don't have a website, okay. and, and I, I keep thinking I'm going to do that, but I am I'm, I'm just so untechnical. But I am I'm going to I'm going to try to go in that direction.
0: Okay, we're we're going to go on then. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah.
2: I'm Sid Lieberman, and you're listening to the art of storytelling with
0: children. Go ahead. Introduce yourself.
2: Uh, my name's Scott. I'm from uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm uh, I just have a, a new interest. Uh, kind of in um, the history of Native Americans and such. Um, And I do have a question, if I may ask, uh, Tim, about uh, the story that you told regarding cats and and panthers, um, if I might. Uh, You had mentioned that uh, a lot of times they come back as as ancestors, um, or at least that's what the lore um, states. Is there any other um, form or kind of representation that cats or panthers have um, in
3: Choctaw lore? The, the primary reference, the reference that I'm familiar with is, is of, uh, of ancestors coming back and, and coming back in extreme situations. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't be if you saw a panther while you're walking in the woods, it means it's a, it's an ancestor acknowledging, uh, that you've been showing the right kind of respect to ancestors. When a Choctaw sees a panther, it means their life is in danger. And the first thing they need to do is stop. Is physically stop, make sure the next step they take is not going to be their last. Take a few steps backwards and then start to look at their lives and see who their friends are, see what they're up to, see where the danger really lies. But as far as panthers showing up in any other kind of uh, context, I I wouldn't I wouldn't know of it.
2: Is there any correlation um, between you know that idea and the shape shifting? Um, is there shape shifting into, to, to, I guess, Panthers? I, and the reason I ask is in your first, first book, uh, Walking the Chalk I Road, you tell about a story about a little boy, um, who, who does some shape shifting into a Panther. And, uh, I was kind of curious, I guess, if there was any kind of correlation between, between just general shape shifting and the idea that the and, Panthers can that yeah. Okay,
3: that, yeah. that story was, uh, and, and you're right in terms of, as far as, uh, as far as that particular story that was told to me by tom Wheelus, who's an uh, in oklahoma choctaw and lives outside of norman right now and it's kind of an isolated story which is one reason i wanted to include it in the book because uh, a lot of times you include these stories and then people come forward and they they tell their own version of it and uh there's a later story called brothers that talks about a man who was able to split a tornado in half and since that time, I've had dozens of older Choctaws come up and talk to me of, yeah, my uncle or yeah, my aunt or Buck Wade talked about his granddad and, and but it didn't happen with the Panther. You know, Thomas Wheelos told me about that story that comes from his his folks, who were Alabama Choctaw. But then, uh, other than that, no one has come forward and indicated, you know, a, a child who had a who had a cat shape shifting side side to it. There there is an element of shapeshifting to that, to to the grandparent, the great grandparent, the ancestor. But it's when you say shapeshifter it, it it has a different kind of thing. In fact shapeshifter usually takes on kind of a dark side, uh and is more thought of as is kind of southwestern. Well that's not really true. That's not really true. There are a lot of shapeshifter stories in uh in Choctaw and Seminole lore. Uh, most of them deal with uh, with owl. So, so the dark side of shapeshifting in in uh, southeastern would be the owl.
0: Hey Scott, I'm going I got one more person I want to squeeze in. I'm running out of time. Is that okay if I go on? Fine. Okay, great. That's me. I didn't have anything
1: to say. I've just been listening.
0: <laughs> well, Elizabeth, you go on and introduce yourself to the audience who hasn't heard you before, and and just give us a thought of the day. I don't know.
1: I'm an. I'm Elizabeth Ellis. My question is, what will you call the next book, the next collection? Is it going to be Driving the Choctaw Road?
3: (laughs) If it is Driving the Choctaw Road, it'll be with a pickup truck with 275,000 miles on it, because that's what I drive. (laughs) Uh, The bumper falling off, because I felt sorry for the young girl who ran into me, and I didn't want to, mess up her driving record for an old truck like that. So I just left the bumper hanging. Uh I'm thinking House of House of Purple Cedar, it's it's a novel I've been on for about seven years and I'm just I'm just loving it and I've given myself almost two months off in the summer to to complete it and get it in an agent's hand. So uh and it'll be it'll be a novel but it'll actually be a compilation of a lot of stories that are stitched or stitched together. And I also have a great story, uh, Cutshin Mountain, which I worked on with an Appalachian storyteller by the name of Elizabeth Ellis, which needs to be in written form one of these days, Elizabeth. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing good.
3: <laughs>
0: Elizabeth is a previous guest on the show, and you can listen to her show right now. If you want. can't wait for this one to come out uh, live, um, you, can listen to this, you can listen to her show on storytellingwithchildren.com. Well, we're running out of time. Thanks for dropping by, Elizabeth. Glad to.
3: Yeah, thank you, Elizabeth. Nice to hear you.
0: Tim, you have an offer for us?
3: Uh, Yes. I I guest edited a copy of Storytelling Magazine, uh, November, December of 2006, and it's called Beating the Cyber Drum, Modern Native Voices. It's a collection of... uh, Stories from about, uh, oh, about eight or ten friends of mine who are modern Indian people, all the way from Alaska to, uh, the Pueblos of New Mexico to, uh, Canada and, and several Oklahoma Indian voices. And I, when it came out, I saved several issues, got more than I needed. So to the first 25 people that email me, I'll, uh, send them a copy of, uh, of the magazine, it's it's a brand new copy, came out in November December of 2006, but it'll be in mint condition, and I'll I'll sign it for you and inscribe it if you like. The email is timtingle at hotmail dot com, or I, I guess it might appear on the on the website. But that's that's the offer, and I'll be glad to uh, also include a bibliography of books that I think are important ones for folks that want to tell Native stories and also a bibliography of the best uh, Native American fiction that, that I think is being written today with a list of authors in their books, and I'll include those along with the magazine.
0: And will you send the bibliography and uh, information via the Internet to people overseas?
3: I'll be glad to, certainly. And uh, if you like, we could... We could post that on the on the blog that I'll send in on your website, so those two bibliographies could also be accessed on the website. I'd love to do that, if that would be appropriate on the on the blog that I'll that'll be part of the website.
0: And for my offer, I just want to remind the listening audience that I have a community online called StorytellingWithChildren. N i n g. Dot com, and that community is for people who are isolated who work with kids and tell stories to kids if you want to get on there and share your work um, and share what you're doing if you want to get on there and share what you're doing and share your work you're welcome to um, talk about your latest project your latest book your latest telling your kids whatever you want to talk about and also i have the blog which is storytelling with and i have right now uh, about 100 posts 80 interviews 80 hour long interviews and each interview is, has a blog post, and each blog post has a little place where you can write a comment. So if you enjoyed this this conversation in this hour, you can go right now to the website and write a comment to Tim about what you thought about the show or a question or a comment. And at some point in the far future, Tim may come back and check it out, or I'll let him know, and he might write a comment back. And, and as a part of that, if you are a professional storyteller... It is important to build Google relationships and links. And so when you leave a comment, put your website, and that's Google Love right there, and that's what,
3: that's what it's all
0: about today in the Internet. Tim, any final words for the international storytelling movement?
3: I'll, uh, I'll opine here that uh, my storytelling teacher, my primary storytelling teacher, was a man named Charlie Jones, and he passed away several years ago. He worked with me, uh, taught me stories. Every time we got together, he would share a different a history story, a, a, a traditional story. He was just a wonderful giving man, and he would always, uh, always say, "You know, when you tell these stories, tell them not just to entertain people, but tell them to teach people the story, and and encourage people to tell these stories." And he never said encourage. Only Choctaws to tell these stories or encourage only Native American people. that was not part of his thinking at all. When he looked out at an audience, he saw an audience of of people eager to learn and wanting to know and he he encouraged me to teach stories to people of all races and backgrounds, and he his one thing he said, make sure that when they tell the stories, they tell the people that they're Choctaw stories. They're not just Indian stories, that they're Choctaw stories, and let them know how proud you are to be choctaw and that's my that's my feeling about who should tell native stories. I can't say who should tell native stories, but i can I can give Charlie and my opinion on who can tell Choctaw stories, that's everybody that wants to. That's kind of my final word on it,
0: and I'd like. I'd like to to leave us with this thought that storytelling as a medium is something that goes both ways we are telling the audience but we're also listening to the audience we are listening to the audience but we're also keeping track of where we are in the story we are keeping track of the big picture and the small picture we are we are sharing a moment to me that's the difference between Acting and storytelling, there's some argument about this, but, but in storytelling, you can really change the material in mid-stride to meet the needs of the audience. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about storytelling, we're talking about something that goes both ways. When we're talking about Native American storytelling, we're talking about a type of storytelling that belongs to a place. And it belongs even, I would dare say, to a people. And so when we talk about storytelling, we're talking about not only the passing of knowledge, the passing of information, but also the passing of responsibility. And you can't escape from it. If you have told a native story, you have a responsibility to know more about those people. Just like if you tell a story from France, you have a responsibility to know what the, that French word means or, or the historical reference of that World War I reference. You have a responsibility to know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And if you find out those people are having a hard time, I think you also have a responsibility to do something about what's going on. That's my two cents. I hope you all, I want to thank everybody for coming on the call. And Tim, thank you so much for coming today.
3: Oh, thank you. I'm honored.
0: I'm honored to have you, sir. (laughs) So even though, even though crows fly up in the trees, crawling and calling and making all sorts of racket noise whenever they hear me say it, This is Brother Wolf, and you've been listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children. This guest has written a post for the blog at www.storytellingwithchildren.com. You can make a comment or ask a question in the blog comment box about this discussion. If you wish to join a future discussion live on the call, go to www.storytellingwithchildren.com and sign up to the email alerts to receive future notices of shows. This show was conceived, hosted, and produced by me, Eric Wolf. And to support the show, you may learn more about my storytelling work by going to www.ericwolfe.org. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This podcast is the responsibility of Brother Wolf Storytelling and is distributed under a Creative Commons non-derivative license. That means you can copy it and give it away, but you can't edit it or sell it.